Welcome to the Weimar podcast of Government Policy, Real Estate, and You. I'm Liz Recchia, Government Affairs Director for Weimar. In February 2019, I was fortunate to interview Maricopa Mayor Price at Coffee with the Mayor, hosted by the Pinal Chapter of Weimar. In part one of our two-part interview, we learn how Mayor Price went from a financial advisor to being mayor of the booming city of Maricopa. We get an update on big projects, some of which have now broken ground or been completed. We learn about this enthusiastic mayor's view of economic development, interagency cooperation, and his MAP, Maricopa Advocate Program. Join us now as we have a conversation with Maricopa Mayor Price. Maricopa is just a wonderful place. It really grows on you. Everything's brand new. And there's, there's pros and cons to that, I think. You know, I certainly, we, we love our history. We love where we've come from. You know, we were all farmland 15 mm-hmm. years ago. And yeah. so, you know, everything has is, is come out of the ground. It's brand new. And that, that's really appealing to people. And I think probably the, one of my most favorite things about it is that, you know, there's not a lot of that history of, well, this is the way it's always been done. And so it has to continue to be that way. Uh, we're very much about saying, well, this is our problem. How do we get outside of it? How do we fix it? How do we change it and think bigger than that? So we just, we say, this is, this is the issue and let's just attack it. And we go for it. And so that's, I think that's something that's very appealing to me and my personality, as well as to the, to the city as a whole. And so, yeah, I, I come from a background. I grew up in Tucson, went to school in, in Flagstaff, went to law school out in Houston, uh, came back here, became a financial advisor. Who knew? <laughs> Did that and... I worked at Arizona State House of Representatives as a legislative analyst, and so it's interesting now that I find myself back in, in a position in which I, I end up doing a lot of legislation. You talked about bringing Pinal County uh, representatives here to, to speak, and you know I know those folks very well, so if I, I can help with introductions, I'm more than happy to. But you know, certainly dealing with the legislature is an ongoing battle. We always joke that when they're not in session, that's when there's no damage being done to us, so that's a good thing. <laughs> it's an interesting game. And at the end of the day, it's, it's how you play it that, that wins. And so it's important that we all play the game a little bit. So you mentioned you're, you were in private business, owned yep. your own business. You also were the analyst for the State House of Representatives. So how did those two jobs influence how you look at your current job and your vision of the city, how you work for the city? I think that's a great question. Uh, I think it's absolutely critical. We always talk about how government should be run more like a private business, and there's a lot of aspects of it that can be and should be, but there's a lot of aspects that it cannot be. Uh, And I think that coming from the private sector and then working in government, you are able to see, if you're you're open-minded about it, you're able to see how you can make that, that changeover and where you're limited. You see, government really does have a role. It has a role to play in public safety, when it comes to permitting uh, things, you know, but, but it's like anything, you can take it too far. You know, you guys are all uh, real estate agents. In Maricopa, it was built on the backbone of HOAs, right? That's how you, that's how, that's how most builders build nowadays. They go out and buy, you know, 5,000 acres or 2,000 acres and they shove as many homes as they possibly can on that because it's a formula that is proven to, uh, to make money. And so when you look at it from, from a fiscal standpoint, it, it makes sense, but at the same time, there comes some challenges with that. And, and, you know, you're living five inches from your neighbor. So I think that, that understanding that government has a role to play where it has to balance out. Uh, I was an HOA president for, for eight years, and I always uh, am probably quoted for good or for bad saying I hate HOAs. But the reason is, is that I learned, I learned that if I was going to help people, I needed to learn the ins and outs of it. 
and I needed to know how the government of an HOA worked so that I could help people understand what they were A, getting themselves into, and B, once they were into it, how do they, how do they you know, navigate it? And so I think that taking that and applying it to, to the government sector now as a mayor, having a financial background, having a legislative background, um, you know, having a business background, now adds all that to it so I can see it from a government perspective of where it's supposed to operate from and when it goes too far. And I think that, uh, you know, again, as an HOA president, I saw that all the time. People come in and say, I want you to do this. And, you know, it's some outrageous something or other. Kill all the mosquitoes. And I'm like, I'm not God. I can't kill all the mosquitoes. You know, I, I don't have that authority or power. But at the same time, there are things we can do. And so, you know, it, it's understanding where the limits are and then understanding what we can do and, and being able to have that discussion. I think the other side of that is also an education. Anytime you can talk with people and say, okay, look, here's where our parameters lie. Here's the legal ramifications. Here's where we you know, have to deal with personal responsibility. And here's how we have to maintain a fiscal responsibility. And you know, managing all of these parameters gives us that ability to define the box. And I always say, if you want to think outside the box, you have to define it first. So if you define that box and you know where it is, then you can think outside of it. And then you can say, okay, this is, this is a bridge too far. Or this is, you know, maybe we can step up and do more here in this area. So I think having these backgrounds and these, uh, these preparations, if you will, uh, I think hopefully lead me to be a, a better official in my time as, as, a, as a mayor. Great. So let's take a big view, big overview of Maricopa. Where do you see your city in five to ten years? And then after that, where do you see your city in 50 years? Wow. That's a good question. So if I have my way about things... I'm a very pro-growth individual. Uh, I believe that the rising tide raises all ships. And so as such, I think that the city of Maricopa is, is just destined for growth. You know, it has its challenges like all cities do. It's kind of a, a cat got your tail or catch 22, you know, a dog running and chasing its own tail in a circle. That's the way government has to be sometimes in the fact that as you grow, you have all these new challenges. So you work to solve those challenges. And as you do that, you grow and you have to work to solve those challenges. And it's just kind of a, an ever-responsive yet trying to be proactive mentality of how do you accomplish both things. So I see Maricopa, I recently, just to give you a kind of a, a, a glimpse into what you're talking about, Maricopa in 2008 or 2009 had a Wall Street Journal uh, article uh, published about it. And it was, it was titled Paradise Lost. And, you know, it's so interesting because a Wall Street Journal reporter came out, was talking to our previous mayor, who's now a county board of supervisors member here in Pinal County. And at that time, you know, they were talking about all the things that they envisioned for the future. And at the same time that we were in the middle of the recession, one of the worst recessions we had ever seen, uh, especially to those of you in the, in the real estate industry, you know exactly what I'm talking about, um, that it was a housing crisis. And, and for Maricopa, that's what we were built as. We were built as a suburb, right? Uh, you know, here was this little little piece of land out, out you know, beyond Gila River that, that could offer something great. We were in a drive-till-you-qualify kind of mentality at the time, and it really provided something for, for folks that were looking to, to buy a house. And so when that's all you have, then when the recession that happens is all based on real estate, you're going to get disproportionately hurt. And it was really kind of a sad article. I was actually quoted in it because I was an HOA president at the time. And uh, 
you know, it's a, it was a sad outlook. And yet, here it is to go back and look at that in 2018 to 2008 and say, oh my gosh, look at all these things that actually did happen despite the recession. Because people didn't give up. And because we didn't give up, we attacked those challenges and we kept working towards them. And look at all those things that we talked about wanting to have, we now have. So to answer your question, where do I see us in five years and 10 years and in 50 years? I see that we're going to continue to explode in our population. I think we're going to continue to attract a diverse economy. That's something we've been working really hard at. We don't want to just be a suburb. We want to be a city where you can live, work, and play. And I think that when you look at the quality of life of the city of Maricopa, what you have is a really high standard of quality of life. We have amenities coming in left and right. We have people seeing that there's an opportunity there that they had never seen before. In fact, I'll diverge for just a moment and tell you a little story. So one of the areas, if you've been to Maricopa lately, you've seen our Copper Sky Recreational Sports Complex. And I think it's beautiful. I think it's a gem of the city. Uh, it sits just about, I don't know, 100 yards away from uh, and across the street from Harazak Chin's Casino and, and Ultrastar Multitainment Complex, which is also a gem. And between their marketing efforts and ours, I mean, it's really just kind of standing up as, a, as the place to be and a place that you want to see. Well, when the council um, purchased that land, there was a lot of challenges to it. It was in the floodplain. Uh, you have to go through, you know, in post-Katrina world, Hurricane Katrina, you, you have to do a lot of different things with FEMA to eliminate floodplains and other things. And so it was a real challenge. And yet the voters of Maricopa said, we want to pay for this facility because we want it so bad. And, we, and they voted to do it in 2008. Okay? And they said, we're going to pay a secondary property tax because we want this so bad. And we're going to do it in the height of the, of the worst recession since the Great Depression. That says something. So furthermore, they, we, the council decided to set aside 18 acres of commercial frontage property right there along the 347 uh, in that particular area for the eventual construction of what would be a, a viable commercial you know, facility that goes along with the park and the, and the recreational sports complex. And yet it's taken several years for it to happen and to things to be primed. But once we got the overpass done and, and got it funded, it, suddenly that land became incredibly valuable. And suddenly people started coming out of the woodworks. And so the story I'm going to tell you is about uh, the owner of Shea Properties, right? You know, Shea Commercial, Shea uh, Homes. And uh, this gentleman has been in commercial real estate for some 35 years. And he owned the piece that is, if you know the area, you come up Maricopa Castle Grand Highway from here, you get to Walmart, right? And that big piece of property there next to Walmart was originally slated for a variety of things prior to the, to the Great Recession. And he owned it and it sat in the bottom of their portfolio. And as we used to go to them and talk with them and try and get them to encourage them to, to market it and, and sell it with us, right? They just wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, uh, so we finally took a buyer to them and said, hey, this guy's interested in buying your property. Uh, would you mind doing it? And they said, yeah, no problem. He washed his hands and said, I'm basically done with Maricopa. And, you know, that's a kind of a sad, a sad state of affairs, right? Well, it turns out that the company that we contracted with to do our uh, development of what we call Copper Sky Commercial, uh, called CPI, and CPI ended up you know, tapping their networks and their resources and brought in a variety of different people, including investors from New York. And the investors from New York came out and were planning to be here for about three or four hours and fly home. Okay? They came out, they saw the property, they saw the area, 
They were flabbergasted at what was going on there. <laughs> so they, uh, they turned around and they, they canceled their flight. And they stayed the entire day. And they stayed the, the night. And they talked with us, came back out the next day, uh, and toured the rest of the city and, and talked about the future plans, et cetera. And it was funny because they said, well, don't, don't tell anybody else about this place. What you, they're like, what do you mean? They're like, Shh, no, no, we don't want anyone else in New York finding out about this. This is amazing. And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. You know, this is great. We're, we're happy you're saying that. Well, they then brought out uh, this gentleman from Shea Properties. And Shea comes back out. And he goes, you know, he says, when I left Maricopa, I thought I was done. I thought I'd wash my hands. I didn't think I'd ever be back. He says, I've been doing this for 35 years. He says, what I see you guys have created, you've created a foundational premise of a quality of life. You have the amenities. You have a sense of place now that you didn't have when I left here 8, 10 years ago. And he says, it's incredible. He says, I have money tied up in three other projects in the Phoenix metro area. He said, if I know, or if I had known then what I know now about Maricopa, he goes, I would take every dime out of every one of those projects and I'd put it solely into Maricopa uh, because this is the opportunistic gem that people just don't know about yet in the Phoenix metro area. And so for us, that's a huge compliment and a huge um, exciting uh, motion or movement or momentum forward that we hope to carry on. And so... When I see the next five years, I see huge growth. When I see 10 years, I see more build out of, of industry and companies. Uh, when I see 50 years, I see a Maricopa that nobody even recognizes today, and that's exciting. So speaking of that growth and, and new amenities coming in, can you give us an update on some of those new projects that some of them we may not even see yet, Absolutely. but they're coming? It's true. Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about economic development because... You know, there's, there's so many things everybody wants to know, and you, yeah. can, you can only say so much sometimes. Um, but the reality is, is that we're working on a business park. Um, we're working on, on seeding that ourselves. Uh, we've tried several times with uh, public-private partnerships. And, you know, the problem is, is that certain developers come in and, and they, um, they want something to be done now, right? They want everything to be... Uh, so, example, if you're trying to build a flex space, right? If you all know what a flex space is, right? And... They want 10-year commitments from a bunch of folks that, you know, are used to working out of their garage. Yeah. Well, that doesn't really work. People don't make that, you know, I went from my garage to a 10-year commitment into, you know, 5,000 square foot of space. Yeah. And so there's, there's that stepping stone is really hard to fill because, you know, developer wants this, but yet the people in Maricopa and the businesses have either had 347 frontage space or the garage. There hasn't been that intermediary step to go to. And so one of the things that we've learned as a government, especially in the city of Maricopa, is that while we don't believe that we should fill the role, the private sector, sometimes, and I had this explained to me by an economist who's very well known in, in the Phoenix metro area, Jim Rounds, if you know him, um, he said, you know, and he sits on the, uh, on the uh, board of the Goldwater Institute, and so they're very, you know, all things hands-off government. But he explained this to, to them the other day, and I thought it was one of the best ways. He says, sometimes... Government plays a role of when you try and teach your kids to ride their bike, you have to be there right with them, and you hold that seat, and you get them going until they learn how to pedal, and when they get it, you let go, right? And that's the same premise of, of what we have to do in Maricopa, is if the, if the private sector isn't going to do it, then sometimes we have to spur the private sector by creating the infrastructure around it so that when that moment is ready to let go of that seat and let the private sector run with it, it's ready. And I'll give you a few examples of that. 
first is Copper Sky. Okay, there was nothing south of the tracks except for Akchen and, and Harrah's, um, but there was nothing south. And and part of it was because you know most real estate agents and others said, oh, don't buy south of the tracks, right? Or don't because you have to deal with the train. Well, the solution to that was the overpass, but nobody believed we could get it done. And so we worked on it, and we made sure we got it done. And the second that sucker was, was funded, you would be surprised what has suddenly happened south of the tracks. It's no longer a north and south portion of the city, but it's one city because it's, it's now connected. When you look at, at uh, you know, trying to get businesses off of the 347 and into other parts, uh, I always equate the 347 to the Vegas Strip, right? Everybody wants to be on the Vegas Strip. Well, there's other things in Las Vegas other than the Strip, right? I mean, all you got to do is get off the, off the main drag and you can see all kinds of great things. And it's the same premise. But, but how do you get those initial first ones to start? And so what happened is we built City Hall in the east section of town. And people are like, well, why would you build it out here in the middle of nowhere? Well, it's in the middle of nowhere now, but it's not going to be in the middle of nowhere tomorrow, okay? Because what we just created was we created a need for people to come this way. And as soon as you can pull traffic off the main drag, now you have a reason to build things around it. And so what it's created is created a new district of area of schools that now because of the, of the traffic that schools create, again, you are now creating a need for businesses to say, well, wait a second, look at the traffic counts. They're, they're off the main drag. They're coming here. I, want, I, I stand to benefit if I build a business here. And so that's the same thing we're trying to do with our business park. So as I look at Copper Sky Commercial, I look at the business park, I look at the, the development uh, area by Walmart, um, you know, we are working on a hospital, we're working on uh, a variety of large uh, type amenities that will change the foundation of, of what Maricopa is. Also with additional roadways, we are looking at partnerships from a tech park. So when I look at Chandler, I see Chandler as you know, they're built out. There's no place left for them to go. They can go vertical, but there's not a whole lot of places for them to, to grow out. And so that leaves Maricopa as the next jumping off point. And so what I see is I see reverse commuting, right? How nice is it if everyone is still commuting out of town from Maricopa that people are now commuting into town on a, basically what is an open roadway coming the other way? Plus, if folks from Maricopa are working at this, in this new tech corridor, then what do you have is you have less people on 347. Um, because you have more people staying and working there. So I really see huge projects coming, uh, but it's always about the first. Who's going to be the first? And, and I'll give you a great example. So since I've been mayor for six and a half years now, I have probably had a thousand meetings with hotel developers. Okay? I talk with them all the time. And it's funny. People always said, oh, it's A, never going to happen, or B, when it does, you know, it'll be another 100 years. And I said, that's not true. It will happen, and it will be 100 years. It just takes the first person. Who's going to be first? And once that first one happens, you watch, mark my words, within two years, there'll be another one on its heels. And, and it's funny because I'll have hotel developers come in, and they'll sit down with me, and they'll say, well, what can you give me? And that's the first thing. Oh, well, I can't give you that much because there's... Something called the gift clause in the Arizona Constitution, but you know, aside from that little little bit, uh, you know, we, we can talk about other things. And and yet, the first thing out of their mouth is, "Well, what are the comps?" Well, there's no comps in the air. There's no hotel. You know, you'd be the first. I, I don't know how to tell you this. You know, I can show you the studies. I can show you how this works, and I can show you the need. But until you're willing to take the financial risk, you know, it's a, it's a risk reward scenario. And so. Sure enough, we finally have had a guy uh, through our contacts with CPI and others, uh, someone who's come along, seen the light, and has understood the value that, that is staring him in the face. 
And so, um, sure enough, we, uh, I think actually in tonight's agenda uh, for city council meeting, we will be approving uh, the sale of a piece of property for the uh, Maricopa's very first hotel within the city limits. And uh, sure enough, there's a second one right on its heels. And so it's, it's, fun, to, it's fun to see when people finally get it, yeah. you know, and they finally go, I see the bigger picture now. It makes sense to me. And, you know, sometimes you have to be the first one to drop the seedlings to, to create the forest, but you give it a little bit of time and, and a forest will appear, I promise. So as you talk about these new projects coming in and your vision for the growth, one of the things that all that depends on is infrastructure in place. So do you have fiber? Do you have water? Do you have roads? Or can you do that quickly? Do you have air? Do you have rail? So can you talk a little bit about that part of your planning? Yes. Um, <laughs> so that's a really big topic. Yeah. And uh, let's start ticking them off here. So uh, infrastructure. Fiber. Uh, fiber is not some, so. Maricopa has, like all cities, has its challenges, okay? And you have to remember that, that Maricopa lies in Pinal County, which is really fun because everyone thinks we're in Maricopa County. And so I always get, you know, complaints about somebody from back east. And, you know, in the days when, when Sheriff Joe was the sheriff, it was always, you know, how can you let him be sheriff? And I'm like, first of all, let me explain how this works. He's elected. Second, he's in Maricopa County. I'm in Pinal County. I know I have the name Maricopa. I get it. And then I would always send them to Greg Stanton, Mayor of Phoenix, even though he couldn't do anything about it either, because I just thought it was funny. So <laughs> I don't know if he thought it was funny, but I did. So, <laughs> so anyways, um, at, the, at the end of the day, infrastructure is a really big deal. But you got to remember, we lie between two Native American Indian reservations. And as such, that creates its own challenges, right? You have to deal with rights of way. You have yeah. to deal with all kinds of stuff. But I think that as we, as we see ourselves as a, as a new urban city or a new modern uh, American century city, one of the things we have to deal with is we know that uh, we've got to figure out ways to advance the tech. And yet tech is very expensive, mm -hmm. right? I mean, some of you have probably seen and seen the, the proposed solar roads that help charge your electric vehicles as you drive right. over them that they're doing in right. Germany. Um, I don't know if you know this now, but roads cost about a million dollars a mile, okay? And that was before the 40% increase of, of labor and materials this year alone, okay? So a million dollars a mile, if it's an ADOT road, it's about $4 million a mile. So you can do the math real fast that if you want to build a solar road, that thing's going to cost you about $50 million a mile. Well, there's not a lot of $50 million laying around in, in multiplicities of, of, of that chunk of change. Um, there's a lot of need in the state. It's a very large state. And yet, because of our tax structure, because of the way we, we work, uh, and that's okay, it means we have to prioritize the priorities. And so we have to deal with things like fiber in a very creative way. We do a lot of grants. Um, as we rebuild infrastructure for old roads or uh, revamp an area, uh, like we have a, a, a great plan to revamp our Heritage District, um, which is that downtown area with, with the rail and everything else, um, we, we look to, to, to establish it then. And so we, that way we don't have to go back and re-rip up roads and redo things. Uh, also, really focus on partnerships. So we like to partner with our cable companies, um, things like that, so that when, again, when we're doing this, we're working together with the natural gas lines, we're working together with the cable companies, uh, the electric companies, anyone that we can work with so that we can work together to accomplish this all at once. We GIS it, right? So you map it out, you know where things are, you do it together, and if you can do it all at once, then you save everyone a lot of money in the long run. 
Um, when it comes to roads, uh, roadways is something that I think that we always feel like we're behind in. You know, there's always more roads that need to be paved, always more roads that need to be fixed, um, and it's just expensive to do. And so when you have a limited budget, again, you have to prioritize where you're getting the most bang for your buck. And so that's one of the things we focus on. When you're looking at roadways in and out of the city, well, again, challenges being you have a Native American community. You don't get to just bulldoze a road where you want it to go. It doesn't work that way. It's a sovereign nation. You have to work with them. You have to find things that are important to them. And so that's one of the things I've been working a really long time on, uh, is working very closely with Governor Lewis of the Gila, Gila River Indian community. And we've also done with, uh, you, you know, the, the Pinal County propositions. Of course, those are tied up in the court right now. But if those will come through, then that will offer Maricopa almost $100 million to build alternative roadways, $30 million for the extension or widening or fixes of 347. Then you look at the Val Vista Corridor, which we call the East-West Corridor, right, which comes down Maricopa Casa Grande Highway, goes up Val Vista, hits Pinal, so it goes below Gila River but north of Casa Grande, and therefore adds a high-speed alternative, which really also accentuates that corridor for businesses. I mean, I used to talk with Mayor, uh, obviously Mayor McFarland here in Casa Grande, but Bob Jackson, the, the previous mayor, about how do we incorporate this into a true business corridor? Because there are so many um, industrial businesses and other things that want to locate between these two cities because of the access to infrastructure mm -hmm. and the access to the freeways um, and, and primarily because of the workforce that's here. There is a highly educated workforce. And you guys as real estate agents, you see that. You know who's moving here. You know who's moving to Maricopa, and they all work in the Price Road corridor. They all work in that tech corridor. Uh, at one point three years ago, five years ago now, we did a, a Meet Intel event with the city of Maricopa, and we probably had 450 individuals show up. That's wow. just, just at Intel. But you look at the other, the other businesses in that Price Road corridor there in Chandler, and you've got, you've got who? ASML, you have PayPal, Amazon, you know, uh, other entrepreneurial type stuff. And so, you know, with that, you, you're really creating a need for those businesses, if they locate into this area, they will be funded with, with the workforce that's needed. And so that's really, really important. And I think that, uh, you know, people don't give enough benefit to Maricopa and Casa Grande in that, because again, most of our commuters go north or, you know, into the Phoenix metro area. But the reality is, is that if they can stay and work here, we have a citizen attitude survey that shows that 85% of our workforce that goes north, if they could stay and work in Maricopa, would take a pay cut to do it. That says a lot for, for a highly educated workforce. So I just think that those are the numbers that when, when you're able to get a, a company to understand that, that's a big deal. And it shows a big population explosion uh, especially from a, a workforce perspective uh, and a business perspective, as soon as someone understands that and is willing to take the financial risk to do it. Other things, uh, let's see, water is another mm -hmm. one. Water is a, is a tricky, tricky subject in the state. If anyone who's moved from back east or other places, water probably never crossed your mind. But in a desert, it's a big deal. And you've all heard the phrase that, uh, you know, whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. That is so true in, in Arizona. And, you know, you've probably recently read about the drought contingency right. plan, um, things like that. Our, our water has been the most important resource in this state since before we were a state. I don't know if you know this, but the reason that we have Maricopa and Casa Grande and Phoenix proper is because of the CAP. That canal that runs across the surface water 
because our options are twofold. We can either gather water as it melts from the snow and, and fills up the lakes and the reservoirs, or we can pump it from the ground. And pumping it from the ground, well, we have huge aquifers. They only last so long with an ever-increasing population. And it takes hundreds of years for it to percolate back down and refill. So if you're pumping it out faster than it's going down, then you've got a problem. And so why the CAP was created is because before we were a state, this water, the, 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 the territory knew, we've got to have this. And I don't know if you know this, but it took 50 years, that's 5-0, 50 years of this state working to get Congress to pass the uh, Water Protection Acts and the CAP Groundwater Protection Act that is, is one of the things that we rely on here in the state for our survival. And so we started working on this around 1900. We weren't incorporated as a state until 1914, okay? Or excuse me, uh, 1912, I apologize, on the 14th of February, 1912. You know, as such, it's, it's a really big deal. And yet it still didn't get signed until uh, the mid-60s. You know, water for us is a really big deal. And as Lake Mead continues to drop, everybody's going to take a little bit of a hit. Pinal County's going to take a hit. Uh, we are a member of a seven-state compact, which means that we all have this agreement on who gets what percentage of water of the Colorado River. I don't know if you know this, but that river used to flow down into Mexico now when it gets to a portion of Mexico, it's completely dry. There's not a single drop that comes through. Every single drop is accounted for. And as Lake Mead continues to get lower and lower and lower, closer to the pipe, once it goes below that pipe, you, we have a big problem. And so the idea is, is once it reaches a certain point where there's a, a differential between the height of the pipe and the height of Lake Mead, then they put everybody on a drought contingency plan. And that says, look, we all have to conserve or we're all going to die. Okay, and that's not what anybody wants. I know it's a bit drastic. Uh, you, get, you, you get the idea. But anyways, it's a do or die point. The idea is, is that, that everybody's going to take a percentage. Now, Arizona, even though it was our genius idea to come up with this whole plan in the first place, we had a lot less votes in Congress when it was passed, and we still do. We're very much subservient to California in votes in Congress. And so as such, we are one of the lowest, lowest folks on the totem pole, so to speak, in the drought contingency plan. So when you take Arizona and say, okay, Arizona's gonna take this hit, there's a system of people that all take a hit along the way in Arizona. And we, Pinal County, is one of the lowest on that totem pole. And so it's one of those things we have to be very careful of. I also think it's really important that we control our messaging. You know, I received a phone call a year and a half ago from someone in New York, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and they said, so I hear you have a, a drought and, and, you know, you're, you're running out of water. And, you know, they were looking for the, for the salacious article. Yeah. And I said, well, wait a second. We've done a great job here in Arizona banking water. We sock it away. We, we, we store it. We try not to use all of it. We conserve it. We do everything we can to protect it. Whereas California, they use their allocation every year and it's running down the street in, in waste, right? Because they have so much because they have a higher allocation than we do because that's what it took for them. To, to sign off on the plan in Congress. And so they're wasting it. And then they find themselves in some difficult times and they realize, uh-oh, we're in trouble too. And uh-oh, Lake Mead feeds us as well, so we got a problem. At the end of the day, one of the things that's really important to understand is I think that we need to control our message about, we don't want the folks back east and we don't want the nation to think that because we're in a drought that we are something that should be crumpled up and thrown away. But rather, we are still an amazing place for quality of life, for the ability to live. And because of the way that this state has managed water for the last 
30 years since the 1980 Groundwater Management Act in, in the state of Arizona, we have the ability to weather these storms, to weather these droughts, and to deal with it. When I look at the city of Maricopa, one of the things that I think is one of its biggest selling points is that we have roughly 20,000 homes and businesses, and of that, we use approximately, we have an allocation uh, through our private water company, we have an allocation of 26,000 acre feet of water per year, and we actually use only about 7,500 acre feet of water with those 20,000 homes and, and businesses. So what that says to me is it says Maricopa is primed and ready to go into this next 10 years, this next decade, even despite the, the drought contingency plan, in a position of strength from a relocation of businesses, from a relocation of tech, and a relocation of homes to the area because we still have so much that we can utilize. Now, I'm not saying that we would ever use that you know, foolishly, but it also is something that's really interesting that you know, while a lot of people complain about our particular water company, I will give them major props in this area. And that is, is that did you know that we are probably the only city in the entire state that has probably one of the most green effects when it comes to water. And what I mean by that is every home, with the exception of the oldest homes in the area, right, which is probably 40 or 50 uh, out of that 20,000, but every home and business in Maricopa has a purple pipe attached to it, which means that every time you flush the toilet, every time you take a shower, every time you use the dishwasher, it goes into the purple pipe, it gets sent to a recycling facility, that recycling facility now uses that to water the lawns. It goes into, uh, you know, down into the washes, which helps percolate back into the groundwater. Uh, they do recharges, which are, you know, you, you legally clean it, and it goes back through the system, and then it starts to percolate back into the ground through recharge wells. And so, therefore, your water allotment goes further because you are getting a half an acre gallon back for every, water, every gallon of effluent you utilize. And so what that means then is it means that your water can go and extend so much further. And so, again, while some folks dislike the water company, I have to give them props again to say it puts Maricopa in a position of strength into the coming decades because they are already thinking in ways that other water companies in other cities across this entire state will suddenly have to find themselves in a position where they have to make really hard decisions. Whereas they might have really low water bills now, but those water bills will be astronomical in the future because they will have to go back and start ripping stuff up in order to make sure that they have more reclaimed water, more potential and ability to have recyclables, uh, et cetera. And so when you have to rebuild all that infrastructure, it's very, very expensive. Whereas we are trying to think ahead of the curve and say, how do we deal with what we know is coming and do it now? So yes, we all pay a little bit more now, but that minimization of what you pay spread out over the long term will end up being a lot less than what the rest of the state has to pay because they have to go back and re-add it after the fact because they're going to have to build it in. They're going to be put between a rock and a hard place. And so many of these cities and these city councils that, have, that run their own water facilities are going to be put in a really ugly position. City of Phoenix right now, for example, if you haven't been following that, they have a position where they're having to say, we need to raise these rates, and they're raising them a lot. And people are like, oh, you can't do this to us. And they're saying, wait a second, the feds have said this is what we have to do. The feds have said this is what we have to clean it to. Yep. The, you know, we, we have these water restrictions coming down the pike. And if we don't do it now, 
we're not going to A, have enough water, B, have the ability to deliver this water to you, and then we're going to have a bigger problem. But see, that's the problem in the, po the political realm, is that people come and are angry at the, at the politicos for, for making these decisions that they're trying to protect your, and your kids and your grandkids into the future, 50 to 100 years. But if they don't make those decisions now, then we're in a lot of trouble. And, and I just think that at the end of the day, Maricopa is trying to position itself to where it doesn't find the, itself in those problems. It, again, it's part of being a pioneer, but it's also part of being a visionary. It's looking to the future and saying, these problems are coming. How do we solve them? So if you're not familiar with the drought contingency plan, you can go to wemargad.org, and it's up there along with a link to the drought map. You can also listen to a podcast. We have podcasts as well. And I interviewed Representative Dunn about January 15th, 16th, somewhere in there. And he was speaking to the fact that after the drought contingency plan, the thing that was going to happen is the cities, in the end, the cities are going to have to come to grips with what they need to do. And what you were talking about with the effluent being reprocessed, that's one of the things that Representative Dunn was talking about. Cities are going to have to take a hard look at. So you're way ahead of that curve. Yep. Um, and Representative Dunn would probably like to know more about that. <laughs> <laughs> In the meantime, um, let's take about a five-minute break. Thanks for joining me today for part one of our conversation with Mayor Price. You can access the video of this conversation and learn more about the city of Maricopa at www.wemargad.org. Join me for part two of this conversation next week. I'm Liz Reckia. Thanks for joining me today. Wemargad, advocating for private property rights, the right to private contract, and your business. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>